0: logistically before we get into this, Um, and three of them, exactly three. The first one is, as we read this text today, I want you to remember that we are reading something that was written in a different language between 3,000 and 3,500 years ago. And so even as I read to you today from the New American Standard Version, you may read from a slightly different Bible version, and it may read slightly differently. As we go through the text, I'm going to point out just a couple of things that that Those who have studied the text have had a hard time understanding or sorting out from the original language. But I don't want you to get bogged down by that. Okay? Don't worry about it. It's clear what happened on the day once we take a look at it. Okay? The second thing is, this text spoke to me more in the terms of spiritual warfare than what I call practical warfare. Okay? So we're going to read about a war, about a battle that took place, and it's a big battle. It is probably the biggest and most momentous battle in all of history, physically speaking, okay? So this, the armies that fight here are deciding the outcome for the entire region there. And there is a particular event that occurs, which we'll see, which never happened anywhere else. It's prophesied it may happen again, um, but in the moment, in this moment of time it's never happened at any other time we'll see it and it's huge and the third thing is this o- sort of outline that you see up here, the title of the sermon and so I want to hit this real quick because when I actually go into the text uh, you'll find out that the Lord sort of rewrote the sermon in me after I wrote this title and the title essentially is an outline, it's a word, an opposition and a fulfillment of both Okay, and so the word that I was talking about when I wrote that outline was not specifically the word of God, where God said, I'm going to hand the promised land into Joshua's hands, although he is about to fulfill that, but it's the word of Joshua. And we'll see in this text that Joshua says to God and possibly speaks to the sun and the moon and says, do this. And it happens. And so that's the amazing thing that happens in the text, is there is a fulfillment of the word of Joshua, who is just a man and the leader of the Israelites, but is able in this text to command huge environmental aspects and also essentially to pray to God and have God do exactly what it was that he asked him to do. And that's huge. The second thing is an opposition. God said, uh, first, that he would oppose the people that lived in the promised land and turn it over to Joshua. Well, he didn't say Joshua at first. He said the Israelites. The Israelites had a hard time believing God, didn't go in. Now we're a generation later. Joshua is leading the Israelites in. And God has told Joshua that he would oppose Joshua's enemies. And in this text, you see a literal fulfillment of his opposition of Joshua's enemies. Previously, and all throughout the history of Israel, even after this point in time, we see... One Israelite soldier is as good as 20, sometimes 200, sometimes 2,000 enemy soldiers. That is a fulfillment, essentially, of the opposition where God says, I will oppose your enemies with you. But it's even more so in this text that we're going to see where God opposes their enemies, and you'll see that in a second. And it's a fulfillment of both, because in this moment in time, the Word of God, the Word of Joshua, the opposition of God toward their enemies, it all comes together. And and actually, what, they, what, writes, what the writer writes toward the end of the text is that it by the time they wrote this book, it had never happened before, and it would never happen again. And so that's huge, okay? So I, I won't hear it, but I'm going to say it. Would you get excited with me as we turn to Joshua chapter 10? Amen. Okay, I did hear it. That's good. Thank you very much. All right. I hope that was good. All right. So Joshua chapter 10. I'm going to read 1 through 19, and then um, the emphasis will become clear, I think. I'm going to explain it as we go, or try to. Now it came about when Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel, and were within their land, that he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Okay, So, we've got this guy, Adoni Zedek, who is uh, born with a great name. Uh, it means something like um, son of righteousness, or lord of righteousness. And so, it's a, it's a great name, but He's king of Jerusalem, and this—if you—if you check your Bible, this is the first time that Jerusalem is ever mentioned in the Bible. It's previously called a couple of other names, possibly, but here is the first time it's ever mentioned. Now, Joshua will not—to spoil the story—he will not liberate Jerusalem today in this great battle that they're going to have. He is not. In fact, Joshua will not, in his lifetime, conquer Jerusalem. That will happen under David, but. And it becomes the capital, of course, under David. That being said, this king, who was of Jerusalem, hears about two things that move him to act. The first is how Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed him. Now he did that to Jericho, but it's the destruction of Ai that herein is said to get his attention. And then he sees the inhabitants of Gibeon have made peace with Israel. And Gibeon is described as a great city, like one of the royal cities, greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. And so this is a real problem uh, for Adoni Zedek. He thinks, well, if Gibeon is aligning with them, they were already pretty much undefeatable. And now they have this extra manpower, all these other mighty warriors from Gibeon. And Gibeon was a fortress city. It was a powerful city. It was a big city, it had a lot of population lot of production. It was a big ally. And it was a blow to morale because all of the people who were still going to be with him were going, they were the best of us. They were the biggest of us. They were the mightiest of us, and they've just switched sides. Now how can we possibly win? And so, because of that, he realizes Gibeon must be punished, must be attacked. Gibeon has to be the target. And so it says in verse 3, Therefore, Zedek. King of Jerusalem sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lashish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us attack Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. And so this is a a sort of a vengeful thing. It's a disciplinary thing. It's a strike against those who have allied themselves with Joshua. Yeah, he's fearing Joshua, so he's not going up against Joshua directly. Before maybe Gibeon could come to their aid, but he's gonna punish Gibeon. Okay? So, if you're playing, if you were playing a war game, or if you were watching a battle on TV, this would be that moment in time where a foothold is established in enemy territory, and you have two choices. You can end run and destroy the enemy, which is gonna be a long, drawn out battle, probably not successful, you could be crushed, or you can take back the foothold. You can get that place back. Destroy Gibeon, and that's what they decide to do. So the five kings of the Amorites—the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon—gathered together and went up. They, with all their armies, encamped by Gibeon and fought against it. So they they bring these are all cities that are southwest of there of Gibeon and all and and small kingdoms if you will and they all gather their armies and they come up against Gibeon which is sort of a higher area and this is a rock this is a hilly area anyway but this is a higher area a defensible area and Gibeon is a mighty city. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal. Now right right before we go on realize Joshua is still at Gilgal. That's significant. He was camped at Gilgal before the battle of Ai and they've gone back to Gilgal. They didn't take up residence in the area of Ai, in the valley by Ai. Remember that whole area where they camped for a while? They didn't stay there. They went back to Gilgal. So they're not furthering their conquest. They're not taking additional cities yet. They're back in Gilgal, which essentially was a place of worship for them. So they're back worshiping God, listening to God, following God's instructions. Daily living is occurring. But remember, some of these people are far from their homes. They come from across the river. They don't get to go home until the conquest is over. So it's significant that there's a delay. And he's in Gilgal, and you could say, delaying. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. Now, it seems kind of redundant to us in the language to say, Come up to us and save us and help us. But what's being translated there is a Hebrew phrase that expressed great urgency. We're about to die. Save us. Please help us versus our enemy. A great urgency was in the plea. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. So he's moving the army up toward Gibeon. And before we go any further, I want you to understand that from Gilgal to Gibeon is a 20-mile march it's upwards 3,300 feet or in other words, roughly three quarters of a mile elevation upwards over a 20 mile span. If you spread that out, you're basically talking about a consistent grade of something like this the whole time. But it's worse than that, because there's flat places too, right? You go over a hill and you go flat and then you go over a hill. There, these guys, this army, for us, this would look like hiking in the hills, or maybe rock climbing, right? They're going over very difficult terrain to save Gibeon. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. That's a pretty good promise. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night. So now we see that this march from Gilgal to Gibeon, this 20-mile march, 3300 foot elevation change upward is accomplished overnight in the dark now people do rock climbing lots of people do it and they might do it at dusk they might do it at dawn but they don't do it in the dark they don't you don't hike in the hills in the dark one t- one time years ago uh, sherry and I went um, to Hawking hills and while we were there we decided to take a hike and find a trail that we thought we were near and we weren't near the trail so we want to walk a couple miles to get to a part of the trail that we thought we found the trail and we want to find a different trail and we're walking and this hike which we thought was going to be about an hour lasted four or five hours. Pretty soon it's getting dark. We didn't bring a flashlight and I'm going it's a little overcast, it's starting to get dark, what's it going to be light. Like? So in somewhat of a panic, I mean we were deathly afraid or anything but knowing that we were under severe circumstances there was no cell phone service so if we had been lost in the dark in the park there's nothing we had our cell phones um, but this is back in the day I had a flip phone there was no flashlight and so you know you had that teeny little light glow from it was a reach about six inches from the screen that was it and we're trying to find our campsite And we wound up walking like another five, six miles. And we arrived back at the campsite. And just as we arrived back at the campsite, it got so dark, you could not see your hand two inches in front of your face. I literally walked over to the tent, grabbed the lantern. And as soon as I put my hand on the lantern, it was so dark, I couldn't see the tent. That's how bad it was. We were in the hills, in the trees. They are in the hills. They are in the trees. It's dark. And even with a full moon, if they had one they would be in danger. And so that's the kind of circumstances that they conduct a 20-mile forced march of the entire army from Gilgal to Gibeon. Verse 10 says, And the Lord confounded them, this is referring to the army, before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth-haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And it came about as they fled before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Haran. Stop right there for a second. So these names, you don't really have to know a lot about them. Off the top of my head, I can't even tell you what they mean. But what I can tell you is that these are places that are both southwest and northwest of Gibeon, which is significant. These are places that are moving down from the hills and out away from uh, the height of Gibeon. And so the, the flight of the army that they're defeating is in multiple directions. So there's two theories. One is that they fled one way and were being pursued and killed so bad, they decided to flee another way. And they wound up getting hammered really badly in those two locations. Another theory is that they fled in every direction because they were getting hammered so badly as they were retreating that they just broke up. They lost formation and and, and hid in every hill and every nook and every cranny, which, by the way, is a typical tactic in the Middle East because there's lots of caves and hiding places and stuff, and when they're losing, they'll go retreat and hide wherever they can. That's why later, when you see, like in the Book of Judges and stuff, they're hiding in the caves, and, uh, and they'll say, called all Israel, and the word will circulate, and all the men come out of the caves, and now you've got armies of like thousands and thousands of men that were hiding in caves and nooks and crannies everywhere, because that's the kind of terrain we're talking about. But they're not surviving. They're not able to hide in the next place. The army of Israel is searching them out. So whichever one of those theories you believe, they wind up with additional massacres at these other places that were after the original conflict. But this is what it says. It came about as they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah. So over a long journey from beth the descent of Beth-Haron to Azekah, the army of uh, of the opposition, if you will, let's just say that, is being hammered by stones that are falling from heaven. That's a really significant miracle of God. And it says and they died there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword that's huge god rained stones down from heaven on this army an historical event and destroyed the army and he destroyed it more completely by the hailstones than he did by the swords of Israel that pursued them as the battle continued it says this now as we get into this next passage, you realize that this is where people kind of there's some debates as to the best understanding of the original language. Okay, so they're thinking that this is two summaries. The first summary we just read six through eleven, and now this next part is another summary of the overall battle. So we're not talking about two separate events, and probably 95% of scholars believe that. So that's a very well accepted orthodoxy, Christian, Southern Baptist, whatever would all agree that this is sort of like two angles of the same account that we're reading, okay? Where they don't necessarily agree, I'll show you in a second. Then Joshua spoke to, the, spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped. Until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Can okay, we we'll stop there for one second? So this prayer or command really is what it is, is sort of where there's a debate. The language here is a little bit vague in the Hebrew as to who gave the command to the sun and the moon. Did Joshua command the sun and the moon or did God command the sun and the moon? So we read in the Numeric Standard, they've translated it this way. Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sun, sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O son, it's in quotation marks and it's in like poetic uh, indents, Stand still at Gibeon, O moon in the valley of Aijalon. So that's sort of like a contradiction in a sense, because he says Joshua spoke to God, but then he says it as if he is talking to the sun and the moon, okay? And you see the vagueness. So the New American Standard has done a good job of rendering the vagueness, so we don't know for sure if he spoke directly to the sun or the moon. So what we do know is that Joshua wanted the position of the sun and the moon to stand, and it's, com- it's not uncommon, and actually, it's a good, fort- it's a good uh, omen for battle for the sun and the moon to both be in the sky at the same time. And it'd be a bad omen for the people they were fighting who were celestial worshipers and had all kinds of pagan religion stuff going on. And so Joshua commands the sun and the moon to stay in the sky at the same time. Now, if he does that by praying to God, I'm okay with that. If he does that by God giving him the authority and he speaks directly to the sun and the moon, I'm okay with that. It's possible Joshua prays to God and then God commands the sun and the moon to stand. Okay, I'm okay with that. None of that changes what happened. There is a small group, it's a relatively small percentage of people, who interpret this little bit of text here from where it says, Oh, sun, stand still to where it says, until the nation avenge themselves of their enemies, <clears throat> to be figurative or poetic language. So, meaning, they say, the sun may not have literally stood still in the sky, but the daylight may have remained. Or, that the sun, rather than being stood still in the sky, there may have been an eclipse, making it dark to take the heat off of the Israelites who have marched now, They have been going for... 36, 40 hours, whatever, straight after a 20-mile forest hike through broken terrain in the dark and all of that. And so they they don't, some of them, don't necessarily interpret the text to literally say that the sun and the moon stood still. However, when they do that, they cannot explain the part that's clearly not poetic where it says, and the sun stopped, in the next verse, it says, and the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. They can't explain that, but they say that it's possible, where it says it's not written in the book of Jasher, that these poetic references are copied over from the book of Jasher as a sort of a symbolic entreatment of the battle, Okay, that God made it, so. basically saying God allowed the Israelites with the hailstones to kill more people in that day than could ever physically be possible. It's literally not possible. Men killed thousands of men, each man, thousands of men. If you count that up, they would have had to fight for 36 hours or 48 hours, but they only fought for 24, for example. So that, that's what they would say. Now, I don't really have a problem with that. And when I say that, understand, these are not freakish people that are doing this. These, some, it's a small group, but it's an orthodox, they're Southern Baptists, they're like you or me, they're they're mainstream Christians, they, they believe in the absolute authority of the Bible. But realize that this was written 3,000 plus years ago, and so, in a language that's, as we know, is essentially a dead language, no one speaks the Hebrew that they spoke anymore. Uh, it was written without punctuation, it was written without spaces. It's written—I mean, it's not something you or I could ever pick up and read. But the best, clearest understanding then comes from the, the next part, where it says, "And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day." And then he says, and this this is really cool, if you, li- if you look at the, some, the importance of it, it says, and there was no day like that before it or after it, which is cool, right? Because we know there hasn't been any other day at which the sun stopped in the sky, but that's not what he's about to say. He says, <clears throat> and there was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. So the sun stopped in the sky, the moon stopped in the sky. The destruction of this army is amazing. But the writer of this book does not marvel over the sun stopping in the sky or the moon stopping in the sky or the 20 mile at night hike that these guys took to even get to the battle or the huge victory or the faithfulness of the Israelites to honor their commitment to the Gibeonites who really tricked them into it in the first place. What he marvels at is that the God of heaven listens to the voice of a man. And when he wrote this book, he says there has never been a time before that when it was like that, and never been a time after. Now, you and I know there now has been a time after, right? So, what this is, albeit not in direct words, it's a prophecy about Jesus. You follow? No man has ever been able to command God or pray to God and have his, like this. <clears throat> Even some of the prophets could do it. But at this time, nobody could do it. The prophets, when they did it, it was taken as a sign when they would say to God, when Elijah said, let there be no rain for three and a half years or whatever, and there was no rain for three and a half years, those signs were taken as their authority was real. That, that God really was on their side. That they could Heal that, that men were brought back to life and amazing things like that. So if those kinds of signs are present in a man, this man is somebody that is validated by God. So this, this statement here about the day that we're reading about is really a prophecy about Jesus. Say, it's never happened. And, I, and I'll even submit to you a prophecy about the prophets, right, who could do some of that. But Jesus could do it and did it regularly and was able to command creation at the whim of God and to pray to God and and have his prayers answered. Okay, almost done with the text. It says, I'll read 14 again. And there was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. And he says, for or because the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua And all Israel, with him, returned to the camp to Gilgal, which is really interesting. So they defeat this huge army, and what do they do? They go back to Gilgal, back to where they were before Gibeon called them out. Now, these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Mekedah. And it was told Joshua, saying, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Mekedah. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them, but do not stay there (laughs) yourselves, pursue your enemies, and attack them in the rear. So again, this is still an account of the battle that was taking place. So that 15, that's how they say, this is sort of like three accounts, three different angles, if you will. Some say two, some say three, different angles of the battle to free Gibeon, because obviously Either Joshua went back to Gilgal, receives the message there about the king, sends the message back out, which is a long message, right? 20 miles to be able to do that. Or he's still present at the battle when this takes place. And he says, block the cave, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves, pursue your enemies and attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter their cities. For the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And it came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them with a great slaughter until they were destroyed and the survivors who remained of them had entered the fortified cities that all the people returned to the camp to Joshua <coughs> at Mekedah in peace. No one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. Okay, so that's where I'm going to stop in the text, but that that's where it'll pick up next week and actually may have to go back a little bit. So there's a few things I want you to see in here, and uh, they were moderately amazing to me, uh, even though there are things that I kind of should already know, and Jesus taught them, and like that. But to find them here in this story was moderately amazing to me. Um, it's a little different from what I put there. Okay, Not that that's not amazing. It is, it's, it's incredible. There were, to this time, in the 3,000 years ago, when this book was written, no day had existed before this one or after this one when they recorded it like that, that God fought on the side. Now, I know you say Moses listened to God, Moses talked to God, whatever, but this is more, to the writer, this is more significant even than that. Okay, Moses argued with God, essentially, I mean, not literally, but he talked God into relenting. He said, no, destroy me, don't destroy them. And God said, okay, well, we'll give it one more shot. That kind of thing. All right, Abraham talked to God, bargained with God. Right? And yet, on this day, Joshua calls out the power of God in an amazing way to stop the sun and the moon and destroy God's enemies. That's incredible. Okay. So, as I read this text, I'm thinking about the people that are in the text. I'm thinking about the differences between the people. Joshua and the Israelites have been through circumcision Right when they thought they were going to take the promised land, they have walked through the Jordan River on dry land, navigated whatever barriers to be at Gilgal, to put God first. And yet they are not presently conquering the promised land. Gibeon. Gibeon is powerful. In its region, a very strong city. On its own, able to defend itself. One of the reasons that the king, even Zedek, calls up four other kings to go with him is because he knows he can't touch Gibeon by himself without huge losses, right? Gibeon is a strong people, and they're safe. But Gibeon, as you'll recall from the story previously, in fear of the Israelites and their God, has made a pact with Joshua. So call them new allies. And then you have Adonai Zedek. And Zedek, in fear of losing his land, knowing that God, by now knowing that God, is giving it over into the hands of the Israelites, he looks at Gibeon, who has now abandoned their little allegiance, as a former ally, and says, we hate them, we want to crush them, here's a chance to really, you know, let's get at them looks at Joshua and says, oh, that's a little too big for us. That's a, you know, that's still, they I got God on their side, that kind of thing. But he starts to think that God will not be on the side of Gibeon. Just because they allied themselves with Joshua doesn't mean God is going to be on their side. Right? So we have an interesting set of three parties. Who is the enemy? Well, clearly the enemy is the allegiance of Adoni Zedek. Okay? So again, if I, I saw a lot about spiritual warfare here, so if I could say that, I could say, spiritually speaking, they would be representative of Satan, evil spirits, worldly methods, worldly system, and self. Okay? That's the enemy when we talk about spiritual things. So, it's not really other people. It can be the evil spirits or bad things that they do or bad, you know, things like that. But it's not really the person. Even if the person is really, really evil, a mass murderer trying to kill you, whatever, they're not really your enemy in a sense uh, that they could send you to hell or whatever. We, we, our, our uh, enemies are no longer flesh and blood, right? That's what we learn in Christ. And so you might have them as an enemy for a time to just try to survive or to fight off, right? So Gibeon sees Adonis Zedek as a more practical enemy, and that's, so in spiritual warfare terms, we're talking about Satan, evil spirits, the world system, and self are our enemies. Now, on a practical terms, Adonai Zedek is also the enemy. He wants to wipe out Gideon, and he's Joshua's enemy because Joshua has been commanded by God to wipe him out. They're supposed to kill them, all of them, to eradicate them, but that's not what Joshua is doing. He said, kill God, the lake. And while he delays, God, in his ministry of history, if you will, has Adonizedek get the idea that they can strike Gibeon now as a punishment, if you will, to Joshua, as a punishment to Gibeon leaving the, their allegiance, and that they can be wealthier for it, and probably stronger for have more arms. They may capture men, make them fight. I mean, there's, there's a great benefit in capturing Gibeon. The new ally to Joshua. I hope you're following my thought. So this is practical. So practical attacks, physical, practical attacks versus the new ally of Joshua can yield physical, practical benefits to the enemies of God's people. Follow that? So we're talking about spiritual warfare, and I told you what Adonai Zedek would represent there, but we're also talking about practical warfare. So in practical warfare, this is somebody or something, an event, a circumstance. The enemy, however, coming against someone who is a new ally to the kingdom of God to try to hurt them. Make them come up without enough money. Make them come up without enough help. Their relationships are having troubles. Somehow now they're practically struggling in their lives. Real variables are falling apart. To pull them away from the kingdom, to keep them from being allies with God's people who can lead them to their true help, which is God. You follow? So I saw Gibeon stuck in the middle between God's people and the enemy of God. And while the enemy of God cannot hurt God. And the truth is, if you're God's, if you're truly God's people and you know where you stand and you're obedient to God, the enemy cannot hurt you. Now practically it's still possible, right? Men who love God have been martyred by Men who hated God. So that does practically so happen. Spiritually, you can't be touched if you're in. All right. So this is what I saw. Number one, the delay. The delay presented an opportunity for God to align the circumstances right. But once God aligned the circumstances, then notice what happens. Joshua and the Israelites doggedly pursue the enemy. So first of all, we have the delay. And you could say living right. Just living. They're just dealing with their circumstances at Gilgal. They're they're probably taking care of their armor. They're working out every day. They're making their meals. They're washing their laundry. They're worshiping God. They're studying, memorizing word of God, etc. Right? So they're just taking care of their life. They're doing it. But then when the opportunity comes for and God says, now advance. And the condition or the, the reason the opportunity comes is because of this new ally, they advance. Okay, step aside just one second. What could this look like in the church? You could have somebody in the church, either they're a member or they're not, but they're in. They're worshiping God. They're trying to take care of their thing. And then you have somebody else in church worshiping God, trying to take care of their thing. This person over here begins to struggle has an issue right the enemy practical or spiritual is coming after them this person over here is taken care of by God they're obedient they're following the Lord the Lord brings to their attention the struggles of this person over here and now you see what happened at Gilgal when Joshua heard what was going on at Gibbon right they're just taken care of they're ready They're ready to act, ready to do what God wants them to do. God has not told them to advance yet, and they hear about the problem of the Gibeonites, and they go 20 miles overnight, in the dark, over broken terrain, upwards 3,300 feet. So that would be us as Christians recognizing that someone else is in a difficulty, someone else is in a struggle. It's a new believer, or someone who is new to the allegiance, so they've, they've, they, could be a, they could be professing a Christian 10, 15 years, but they're in a, in a problem. And the problem allows the opportunity for God to get the glory as somebody who is faithful, obedient, and living for the Lord steps in. And to what extent do they need to go to step in? Well, there's no limit, right? Because what's the alternative? If the ally loses, if the ally fails, they, they pull away from the fellowship, they leave the kingdom, they lose their standing as a mighty warrior, and the resources, whatever it is that they possess, now go into the hands of the enemy, making the enemy stronger. He's doing it for a purpose. And whatever his purpose is, our job is to thwart him. You follow? So they're delaying at Gilgal, and the opportunity presents itself. Alright, that's the first thing. And then secondly, There's a surprising obedience in this story. And the surprising obedience in this story is not Joshua. I hope that doesn't surprise you, that Joshua took his men and marched like that overnight. I mean, when they were on the other side of the Jericho, or on the other side of the Jordan, rather, and God said, go to the Jordan, I'm going to make it, so you can." they walked right up to the river. God didn't part the water until they stepped in the first wet spot, you know what I'm saying? So they had to believe that they were going to get across the Jordan River when there was no way across the Jordan. We covered all of this, right? Life before the Jordan is learning to believe that God is going to do what God said he is going to do. So, of course, Joshua believes, right? Of course, the people with Joshua believe when they were just about to take the promised land and had to be circumcised and go through two to three days of intense pain, couldn't get up off their backs, week before the enemy, trusting that God was going to make sure that they were okay. It goes on. Right? They have heard the blessings and the curses of God. Of course they're going to do. That really isn't surprising obedience when I mean, you think about it. And if you have seen God work in your life, if you have seen God do something powerful and miraculous at any point in time, if you've been saved, that ought to be enough alone. You felt the incoming, the Holy Spirit, you realized your sins were forgiven. That would be enough. But if you then later have seen God intervene in your life in some amazing way, then your obedience should never surprise you. Actually, I find myself to be surprised by myself when I fail to be obedient, knowing what I know about God. And then I'll do the same way with you. If you have not honored God with your actions at some point in time, if you step back and analyze your life, you ought to go, huh, why would I do that after all that God has done for me? That's just really dumb. I should be working harder than that. I should be doing more than that. I should be finding a way to do what it is that God wants me to do, right? So it's not Joshua's obedience that's a surprising obedience. It's actually God's. Scientists, uh, I believe it was in Denmark, tried to use a program to forecast where the stars and the sun and moon and everything would be 1,100 years in the future. And at one point, this is a computer program, at one point the computer program stopped. It wouldn't work anymore. It couldn't calculate something was wrong. And they tried to go back as far as they could and come forward from there and calculate where all the planets and the sun and the moon and everything would be. One of the scientists, as the story goes, I wasn't there, one of the scientists smacked himself in the forehead and said, oh, well, there's that story in the Bible about the story of Joshua and the sun stopped and they calculated and they said, we have to go back in. And we need to calculate that. So one of the other guys says, well, wait a minute, if we calculate that and add 24 hours with the sun standing in the sky and the moon standing still at that time, then don't we have to do something about that story, that King Hezekiah, where the shadow went backwards on the stairs instead of, and how long was that? And so they recalculated, recalibrated the computer program to account for a 23 hour and 20 minute delay. Because the sun went back 40, seconds, 40 minutes on the stairs in Hezekiah's time and the day was lost, was a minute. So 23 hours, 22, whatever. Anyway, the point is, that when they recalculated the program, then it worked. The program was able to run and finish the calculations. It is surprising to me that the God of the universe, who can send hailstones down and destroy the enemy, would want to stop the sun in the sky. That means he probably stopped the rotation of the earth, or effectively did anyway. That's, you know, like, why would God do that? You know why God did it? Because Joshua asked him to? Now that's surprising obedience. That God would do that for a man. I want to be a man like that. When I read this story, I want to be a man like Joshua. And I'm sure if you're a woman, you want to be a woman like that. Wouldn't it be awesome to say to God, God, uh, I can only hear 50% right now because my ears are really plugged. Just just fix it. Fix it now, God. And God does it just like that. that. Isn't that what you want? Yeah, but we're not Joshua, are we? That's the problem. Isn't it? There's a surprising obedience in this story. An obedience of a lost day. God stopped the sun and the moon and he fought on behalf of Israel. Intervening on behalf of Israel. Doing more damage with hailstones than they could do with swords. Which is really saying something. Considering how long the pursuit and how they rooted people out of the caves and the nooks and the crannies and over the broken hills and yeah that's a surprising obedience on behalf of God the third thing to see in there is how the Israelites doggedly pursue until completion the task that God has given them intervening on behalf of their allies you hear me now God had already given them the task of destroying these kings. That was already on the to-do list, right? You're going to have to destroy In fact, one of these peoples that they're destroying, the Amorites, which is their primary representative in this army, was one of the people on the list that God said, you will wipe them out every last one. It's already on the list. But were they doing it? No, they were at Gilgal. So today, the task that they are given is not specifically to wipe out the Amorites. They already had that task. The job that they are given today is to come to the aid of the Gibeonites and to wipe out the army of the Amorites that's coming against the Gibeonites. You follow? So this is a new task. And they doggedly pursue that task. God's he's already done. said he's going to give all of these cities into their hand. Why did Joshua say, pursue them all the way and make sure none of them get into the fortified cities when God has already said that they will destroy all of those cities in time? Because God has already said that they will destroy all those cities in time, they can be at Gilgal studying and living and doing the worship and doing all the things that they were doing. Because God has already said it's going to happen. right? So Joshua's pursuit of these men is not specifically because they need to be wiped out at some point. Because that's going to happen. It's already been declared. But rather, his pursuit of them is simply the carrying out Of the command, if you will, or the direction to intervene on behalf of the allies of God's people. You follow? And there is great symbolism in there, isn't there? Because of what we've already talked about. Because this is a new ally. What are these people? They're to be servers, carriers of water and and hewers of wood for the temple of God. They're not even important. Because the Israelites can do that for themselves. Oh, but wait, they are important, aren't they? Because we committed ourselves to them. They committed themselves to us. They came with a right heart, and they said, do with us whatever you want. We will serve. We will willingly serve and do whatever you would have us to do. And who were they? A city, huge, bigger than I.E. They actually had several cities, but this one, Gibeon in particular, was bigger than I.E. With a standing army, the largest in the region, of mighty warriors. And they submitted themselves to God and his people and said, use us however you will. There's a lot of people in the world who could stand on their own. They think they can anyway. There's a lot of people who think everything's gonna be okay. They're gonna make it right. That they're gonna, uh, get their ship to come in. They're gonna get that promotion. They're gonna pay all their bills. They're gonna be okay. They're gonna live a long life and prosper because they're not really as bad as most people. Right? That's the Gibeonites before they come. When they work the plan, the scheming, deception to get Joshua to make the commitment, right? They figured it out for themselves. Then Joshua makes a commitment that then Joshua figures out the deception and they say, We submit ourselves to you. We humbly give you to whatever it is that you would do with us. We submit ourselves to you. Use us however you will. And Joshua spares them, keeps the commitment. And now God says, For this new ally who came with this right heart, go and exact my revenge upon this people that attacks them. Stand up against their enemies. Do you realize it's entirely possible that Gibeon could have won this war without the intervention of Israel? It's probable even. They had the mightiest men in the region, a fortified city, a stronghold, a great place to defend from. And... These kings couldn't be out there at war forever, right? They might have lasted out the siege or they might have uh, executed some kind of special maneuver to get there and and defeat the Amorites. It could have happened. But they didn't, I mean, they get ready for war, I'm sure, and they make plans, but they go to Israel. When I was a young Christian, I had a man uh, who had become my ally and uh, one day we had a conversation as we were coming out of church and I said, um, I, I needed help and I haven't asked. I repented. I said, I needed help and I haven't asked. And, I said, and you needed help and you haven't asked. And we committed to one another that we would, if we needed help, we would ask one another. And I submit to you that that was part of the allegiance between Gibeon and Israel. If you are an ally of the king, of the kingdom, and of the people who are in the kingdom, when you need help, you ask. Why? Because God gets great glory when the kingdom moves to protect his allies. And if you should fall, now you might not. You might be able to stand on your own. But if you should fall, then God does not get the glory. Whether it be to your own temptation, or whether it be to your practical circumstances, or the enemy comes in your house and strikes your family and you you wind up saying, I don't know if I was ever saved and throwing a fit. Whatever. Either way, the enemy gets the glory instead of God. And so you have a responsibility as an ally to God's people and the kingdom of God and to God himself to let someone know. And that's what Gibeon did. Did they prepare to fight? I'm sure they did. Did they have to? No. Guess what? They never left the city. Israel handles everything. This is very convicting to me as we come to the conclusion, which is lengthy. I guess I would ask you this. Are you the called out people of God of Matthew 16, 18, where it says the gates of hell shall not prevail against us? Or are you the weaker ally of God that is in desperate need of the rest help from the rest of the kingdom? You know, we always want to be Joshua. And failing that, I'd at least like to be an Israelite. But the truth is, maybe we're a little bit more like Gibeon. Every one of us. All of us. If you are, by some chance, that called out people of God, if you really know that God has done amazing things in your life, then you should be aligning your resources, organizing your life, preparing yourself for this moment in time at which God will give you the opportunity to come to the aid of an ally, and then literally everything should be on the table. You should be up late at night, you should be writing checks, you should be giving away your vehicle. You should be turning over your house. You should be making up a bed for them. You should literally put everything on the table, exposing yourself in every way to suffering and loss in order to secure that ally. But we don't. Now, part of the reason we don't is because we see ourselves as Israel instead of as Gibeon, and when we need that help, we don't ask for it. So we have two problems here because as I said, if you are that former called out people to church, then you should be awaiting that opportunity to intercede on the, on the the for the weaker ally and setting things up so that you'll be ready. But if you are the latter, the weaker ally, then you should be looking to the people of God for deliverance. You should be looking to God and his people to come up on your behalf and do what it is. So you need to be in church You need to be worshiping. If you're in the worst moment of your life and you think, I could crumble under this, you need to be in worship, worshiping God. You need to be hearing the word. You need to be going to every Bible study you can possibly go to. You need to be studying yourself and doing devotionals and and everything you can do so that God can be speaking in your life and move you from the place of Gibeon to the place of Israel. But what we tend to do is, like Gibeon, we close the gates and then instead of sending out aid, like asking for aid like Gibeon did, we get our army ready. We polish our swords. We're we we, we going to put swords in the hands of 10-year-olds because there's not enough of us to fight. So we're going to get the little kids to come up and do the work. We get them to do all the labor because, as well, right on side of us, but to do all the labor that a regular warrior would do because, because we can't be sure and be successful unless every resource is marshaled all the while neglecting to go to the people of God and allow them to do what they do. If you turn in your Bibles into the New Testament, we're going to look at a couple of things in Jesus' day that I think bring this into stark contrast. The first is in John chapter 15. Now this is a classic passage of Scripture for a couple of purposes, but I want to point out a couple of things in there as well that maybe isn't, wouldn't necessarily be so obvious if you weren't paying close attention. John chapter 15, and I'm going to begin to read in verse 12. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Uh, Why? Why did Jesus command us to love one another? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, God is love, and he who loves his brother and walks in love toward his brother is walking in God. Now, I understand that people say they love. I understand there's a lot of love words. Teenagers say, I love you. dating for a week, and I love you. And let's get married someday. And they're 14, 15 years old. And, you know, it's not that that doesn't ever happen, but it's pretty rare. And the word might mean lust in that context. Or it might mean, I just have a really warm feeling towards you. Or I, I don't know, because I'm not there. I know I had a girl when I was about, um, let me see, I was 12 and we we dated for about a year and toward the end of which she convinced me to say I love you and I did have a strong feeling for her but I didn't know what it was but she convinced me to say I love you she said I love you and then she convinced me to say it back to her and what I'm saying to you is in my experience it, you really got a love that the bible talks about and a love word that a lot of people use and we can dig into that in another time the bottom line is when he says this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? He sacrificed himself for us. He came to the aid of anyone who will declare themselves an ally of God by dying on the cross. And he even says in the next verse, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Okay, so then what are we supposed to do if we're going to be like Jesus? Lay down your life. Now, is that you have to die every time somebody needs groceries? No, you probably shouldn't have to die to buy a gallon of milk, some bread, some chips, whatever. You probably don't have to die to do that. But if you have not organized yourself in such a way that you can marshal your resources to come to the aid of another believer who has needs, then you have been dishonorable to God. You have not respected the command of the Lord. You don't get to wait until somebody's in a... So, okay, they need 50 bucks. Well, I can't give 50 bucks. If I give 50 bucks, I can't pay my car payment. If that's where you are, you are in disobedience to God. Say, the church requires me to tithe. I can't tithe because if if there's a because and there's a something after that, you are in disobedience to God. Let's call it what it is. You say, he needs me to come out at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm tired. I stayed up too late. I was playing video games or I watched a movie or I'm sick because I ran myself down or whatever, and so I can't come out and do what I'm supposed to do. You are in disobedience to God. Let's call it what it is. That love word is not an emotion. It is a practical expression that ends with crucifixion. That's where it stops. And since you or I will never be crucified, most likely, that means it stops nowhere. Now, I'm guilty. I'll come before you and repent today. Because I see people who are in this room that I could have gone to and I could have solicited, say, Hey, do you need help? There's a question there. I think you may need help. And I could have pushed. But I'll tell you right now that there's nobody in this room, not one person who's ever come to me and said, I need help that I didn't do what I could, do everything that I could. Nobody. And if you have and I, then come to me and I'll, I'll beg your forgiveness. What I'm saying to you is we need to be a people like that. That's the kind of people he called us to be. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another. Come to the practical aid of the other person in physical and in spiritual warfare. Just as I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And then he goes on to say, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That's pretty straightforward. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Whoa, wait a minute, hold up, stop everything right there. There's never been a day, never before, never since, that any man has said, God, stop the sun or moon, has said, God, fight on my behalf, and he did it. That's what the writer in Joshua said. He said there had never been a day before and never a day after. So what I'm saying to you is there is something to be observed by the conditions under which Joshua prayed, Lord, move in this way, and he did. You follow? And Jesus told us just now what those conditions are. When we are coming to the aid of an ally... When you have loved someone practically and spiritually in a way that you are extending your whole self on their behalf. That's what they were doing. Joshua the Israelites marching 20 miles over broken terrain 3,300 foot elevation change coming to the aid of an ally. And what had the Gibeonites really done, by the way? I really only know like two actions. Three actions so far in this point the story. Number one they deceived Joshua the Israelites. Well, that's not really, you know that's not really a good thing. Number two, they said, we'll do whatever you tell us. They came with the right heart, submitted themselves to Joshua and the Israelites. That's a good thing. And number three, they were present at the worship service and listened to the curses and blessings of God. So if we just simply, very practically take that, we can say, how indebted are we to people? You know what? We better close our worship service because what I'm reading here right now Is the next person that comes down the aisle and says that I love Jesus, I accept salvation in Jesus Christ, I want to live for him, and I want to be part of this church, that we as a church are now indebted to that person to spend all of us, all of our lives, making sure that they are okay in the kingdom of God. Now if they walk away, they become apostate, they become immoral, we have to remove them, we have Matthew 18 accountability, we can do that. But you know what? We don't do Matthew 18 accountability all that often. It often falls to me to do that or to one mature believer to do that because no one will go and speak to a person. You know why? Because they don't love the person the way they're supposed to. If you were paying their car payment, if you were stopping by their house and dropping off groceries, if you're taking care of their kids, wiping their snotty noses and their poopy butts, then when they go and get into immoral behavior, you would immediately go, hey, that's bad for you and it's bad for your family and it's bad for our church and it's unacceptable. And if they said, oh, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want to do. And you'd come back with one or two more additional people. And you'd say, look, this is bad for you. It's bad for your family. It's not what God would want. It's not what our church would want. And you and they would say, oh, I don't care. And then you'd go before the church and you say, we can't invest ourselves to death in this person because we'll just wind up dead because they don't love the Lord. They're immoral. And they don't belong. But you can't get there and say, we're going to stop investing ourselves in this person until you have loved them in the first place. So we don't practice Matthew 18 accountability all that much when we see people do things that are wrong. We don't call them out and talk to them because we haven't been bearing their burdens and we know it and we know that we're in sin. We know that we're not honoring God. You say, Well, I'm afraid to bear burdens like you're talking about because I'm afraid I'll run out, my copper will go empty, my resources will come up dry, I won't get to have my vacation or I won't get to pay my bills, I'll struggle if I do what you say. Right? And remember I said, if that's your problem, you're probably doing it in doubt and disobedience already, but if that's where you're at and you realize that, then naturally, God is not going to answer when you call. What if Joshua had sent a tenth of the army? What if he had said, "Eh, it's starting to get dark, let's just camp here and wait. It's too much work. What if he had said to the Gibeonites, look, you're strong enough you can handle it then this day never happens that day which at that time was like no day before and no day after never happens and I submit to you it's not happening now and it's not going to happen tomorrow that's not going to happen next month or in six months or months down the road from now and I'm afraid to say what will happen to the church how divided we will be on the day that Jesus comes to take home those whom he loves to his own death who then would live for him this way refusing to love others to their death you are my friends if you follow my commands this command I give you love one another it's a problem it's a big problem it's a problem for 96, 97, 98% of Christians in the United States of America in the world it's a problem for Christians who go to church and they're like I can take care of my own stuff. God's got me taken care of. If you can take care of your own stuff and God's got you taken care of, then there is just exactly one responsibility that arises out of that, and that is that you use your stuff to glorify God by coming to the aid of God's allies. That's it and the tithes still don't go in the offering plate, and the sacrificial giving is still not being given, and people are still not showing up and going, I see you're in trouble, and I've come, and I'm not leaving until this problem is solved. It's not happening. Because the church, that's the Matthew 16, 18 church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us, exists largely in our minds, not in our hearts. If the gates of hell will not prevail against you, then you can put your investments on the line. You can put your help on the line. You can do it until it's about to kill you. And God will step up and miraculously save you. And he will miraculously provide for you. Jesus said, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you in verse 12. Went on through what I just read. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. And then again, this command, this, I command you that you love one another book ending that passage of scripture that we love. I want to be chosen by God. It's great to think that the God of the universe recognized me as he did Joshua, as he did Moses, as he did Isaiah or Elijah. It's great to think that the God of the universe who has plenty on his plate is capable of even more and chose me from heaven, died for me, called me to himself out of love. That's great. Matthew 18 is largely about Jesus saying, I came to save the lost. There's the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. And then right in the middle of all that is the parable of accountability that I was sort of quoting to you just a minute ago. You know why? Do you understand why it's all there? Because it's a passage about loving one another. That's what it's about. You should go to the lengths of the earth till your very flesh falls off your bones to see people come to know God. That's what he's saying. And great rejoicing there is after the coin is found, after the sheep is returned, and so on. But then that part that I paraphrased about discipline. But notice this. He says, If they will not respond even after the church goes to them or they're called before the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then... No paragraph subdivision. The author, the translator, they all agree. It says, truly I say to you that whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You hear it? There has been no day ever before this day or ever after this day he marveled that the God of heaven would respond to the words of men. And what were they doing? They were coming at their expense To the support and defense of an ally of God's people. And God listened to Joshua. And he stopped the sun and the moon and he sent hailstones. Even if you want to get figurative about the sun and the moon, which I would hesitate to do that, but even if you did want to go into that group, there's no denying that hailstones fell from the sky and killed, it says literally, killed more Amorites than the Israel swords did. Who won that battle? God did. Who win the battle if we start to love one another like this and put our resources of every variety that God has entrusted with us on the line? God will. You won't. I won't. God will. That's good because you're only ever going to be in one place at a time. But God is omnipresent. And that battle is far, far beyond you. You can win somebody in Toledo telling them about Jesus. And they become an ally to the Lord. And you show up and actually do something amazing on their behalf and pull them out of a dark spot, and they stay firm. And they wind up in Bulgaria or China or Africa sharing the gospel. And people are getting saved who had never heard the gospel before. We hear the stories about missionaries. How do you think missionaries who go to the people in Africa got saved? The Holy Spirit says to me, there's never a Gibeon unless there's an Amorite. You understand what I'm saying? There's never a young ally to God Unless there's an Amorite. The pastor I got saved under years ago that preached, uh, well, actually, that met me at the altar, it wasn't the one preaching that day because it was a visiting pastor, but he used to say, Don't let the devil steal this decision from you. Walk down the aisle. Let everyone know to whom your allegiance is. Let everyone know that you're getting saved in Christ. Make it public because the enemy is waiting to snatch the decision from you. Jesus gave the parable of the four soils. He said, and some people call the parable the sower more traditionally, right? The first soil is a seed that fell on the path. That's the word of God that fell on the path. But the bird snatched it away before anything could happen. But some fell amongst thorns, and the thorns rose up choked it out before any fruit could be born. What is this? This is the proverbial Amorite coming into the light of the proverbial Gibeonite. I ask you, where's the proverbial Israelite? That's us. We're supposed to do this. God has done this in us. We're supposed to be the Israelite in the story. But maybe we're more like all Gibeonites. What if we were all Gibeonites? What if you're Gibeon and you're Gibeon and you're Gibeon and you're. What do we got to do? Well, what are we supposed to do? We look to God's people for help. We need to find somebody who actually loves the Lord, has some kind of authority, who can help us do what it is we're supposed to do. And what are we supposed to do? Love one another. And did Gideon have any resources? Sure they did. Do you have any resources? Sure you do. And when you decide to put your resources to work doing this, when you begin to align your spending plan, you're giving your hours of your week to make sure that nothing stands in the way when the opportunity comes to marshal around, to rally around, to support a believer, young or struggling at any point in their walk, to make sure that they don't fall, then days like this can happen. Because Jesus said that when you do that, and he put this right at the end of the accountability, so if we're going to have those, we go once, and then we go, one or two of us go to them, and then we pull them before the church, and we say, look, I'm sorry, but your behavior is not godly, and you can't be here. And we begin to treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector, which means what? We love them and share the gospel to them, but not like we love other believers who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a definite distinction there. We're trying to win them to Christ. These were supporting and loving them, as we love our brother, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree, two of who? Two of who? Two who practice accountability, two, two who search out the lost, two who step up and love one another, and love others the way they're supposed to, right? It's in the context. I know you want to take it away. We say, and preachers will get up on a Sunday morning and a in a church that barely has any attendance, and we are few, but wherever two or more are gathered, I submit to you, if we don't gather this way, if we don't gather as the church is supposed to be the church, if we don't decide to start aligning our lives with God, delay, go ahead. Set yourself up to be ready to move rapidly into the life, like a rapid response team into someone's life. They call you saying, hey, I'm struggling. I might do this, and I know I shouldn't. And you're there for them. They call you and they say, "Hey, I, I got a bill I can't pay. I've done everything. I tried to do everything that God wanted me to do. I've been tithing, whatever." whatever. And they say, "I just can't do it. I need your help." And you, and you go, "Okay, you know, I'll sell my car. I'll do whatever I have to do." And when we live like that, then wherever two or more of us are gathered, He is amongst us. Oh man, this is scary. I sure hope there's at least two people here that are buying this. Otherwise, Jesus isn't here. You say, no, no, no. Jesus is in my soul. He was there. I felt him. I know he saved my soul. Yeah, but you're not talking about I come in and take up residence with them and they with me, right? If, you, if Jesus is come and to take up residence in your life because you got saved, then you understand that what I am saying is what he is commanding. Exemplified by the actions of Joshua, prophesied about Jesus, and taught by Jesus while he was alive. Sacrifices must be made. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. We've lost our strength because we fight our way. We've lost our strength because we limit our sacrifices. We've lost our strength because we rate our allies who is worthy of intervention and who is not. Most people fashion themselves as Joshua or the Israelites. Or we're more like the Gibbonites, who just one chapter ago tried to deceive their way into the graces of God's people. And we've got to stop. We've got to repent. I give you this choice right now. In your head right now, I want you to think about the, the thing that is most valuable to you and be careful because that could be your kids or it could be your wife. I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about things, money, time, your car, your house. Now I want you to think about someone that you've seen walk down the aisle and stand here and say, I am an ally of God. I want to serve the Lord. Almost everybody in this room has done that, either here or in another church, or they've committed, recommitted here. Can you give up A for B? Can you give up your time? Can you give up your money? Can you give up your car? Can you give up your retirement fund? Can you give up your boyfriend? Your girlfriend, your reputation whatever it is you decide what is the most valuable thing to you. Can you give that up to come in support of a new ally in Christ? What if somebody walks down the aisle today and they say look I know my life has not been right I repent and I turn to God and I commit myself to the best of my ability to live but the truth is my life has fallen apart I've screwed everything up and I'm coming at that moment in time when I need God. When I'm calling, I'm, I'm afraid of the destruction that is imminent. That's what the Gibeonites did. And they come and they're just transparent. They just say, okay, I'm, I'm begging God to help me. Are you ready? Are you positioned to be able to help somebody like that in the face of the adversity that will immediately come? Because if not, then we have no right to an altar call. We have no right to stand here and say come to Jesus when what we're really saying is come to our version of living as a church which doesn't really include the sacrifices of Jesus. It just says he sacrificed for us and we're okay with that. And if he sacrificed for you and you're okay with that then you're not a follower of Jesus. That's not a follower of Jesus. Now Peter said, oh Lord, far be it from you. Because he loved Jesus. Humanly. I get that. And he was rebuked by Jesus. And so we have to accept what we don't really like. Which is that what we did was worthy of death. And Jesus laid down his life for us. Our just favorite passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And because of those truths, all old things have passed away. You no longer value you no longer are worried about the things of the past. So we get wrapped up in regret, and we like to use it that way. But we're also not attached to money, and we don't like to use it that way. We're not busy trying to find ways to entertain ourselves. We're focused on God looking for that opportunity. And the Lord will call us out to a 20-mile at-night hike over broken terrain to assist an ally of God who, let's just face it, is unworthy of being assisted anyway. Just like we are. So what I'm asking you to do is to commit yourself to be something, nothing less than what Christ said we can be which is the church, which is the kingdom of God, which doggedly pursues the opportunity that God has provided to intervene on behalf of his allies. One day you'll be poor and someone else will intervene for you. Another day you'll be rich and you'll intervene for them. One day you'll be required to say no to a friend or a family member that wants some resource that you have because to give it to them would be to not put it at God's disposal. To not let God do what God wants to do. And I submit to you that God has only ever done one thing. And that is he has loved his people. He has intervened on their behalf. And he's called them to do the same. That's it. I'm asking you to do the same. I'll tell you one quick story. I heard this story. I heard this story 27 years ago. The story twenty some years ago, and it meant a lot to me then. It's about a pastor, a young pastor, who was called to a church, and he'd been there for a few years. And the deacon board uh, of the church had basically been ruling the church when they didn't have a pastor, and that's not really the way it's supposed to be. But it was the way it could be, and so um, the deacon board was having trouble getting that authority over to this new pastor, and uh, the church was dying. People weren't coming, the people weren't coming, people weren't getting saved, they hadn't baptized anybody in several years. You cobwebs in the in the baptismal. <clears throat> they met around a table, the pastor and the deacons. And one of the deacons said that he was in a difficult spot, that um, his car was dead, so the engine had blown in his car, he had money to buy a new car. And... Um, he had to take his daughter for cancer treatments or whatever, and he didn't know how he was going to do it. And one of the other deacons said, "Well, let's pray about that." Sounds good, right? So they prayed. God provide a solution. The meeting went on, and the young pastor, his heart was just heavy. The church is dying. This is his first church. It's like, "I don't understand." And by halfway through the meeting, he stood up and he said, "That's it." I'm done. I can't do church this way anymore. So I can resign if you want me to resign, but either we're the church or we're not. And the deacon's all over them like, What are you talking about? We've been in church for all this time. We're living for the Lord. We've done all this thing. We serve, blah, blah, blah. What are you talking about? And it's like, your brother just sat here and said he doesn't have a car and he can't get his daughter to her cancer treatment starting tomorrow. And our solution was, and I can't tell you the number of times in the last 20-plus years that this has been the solution. Our solution was, let's pray about it and see if God will miraculously provide. Now, this was a brother who was tithing to the church, was giving, serving. He was a sweeper of the floor and a scrubber of the toilet. Whatever. He did whatever needed to be done. And he had a need, and they said, well, let's pray. And God will just provide, right? And so that young pastor, he said, if you want me to resign, I'll resign. But it's my last act as pastor of this church. And he pulled his keys out of his pocket. And he slammed them on the table and he said, Brother, you can have my car. Now he knew his car wasn't paid off. He stole three or $4,000 on it. He was going to have to pay it off. He didn't know how he was going to drive wherever he didn't get to go the next week. He said, you can have my car. And I'll tender my resignation. But what happened next is what will amaze you. Every deacon pulled their keys out of their pocket and said, no, you can have my car. You can have my car. You you can have my car. By the time they were done, they aired out a few more needs and other people said, well, I have this problem, but I haven't been mentioning it because no one ever does anything. There's nothing to be done. And pretty soon, in that little room, was the church, was God's people, loving one another, caring about each other. They begged the pastor not to resign and the church is still healthy to my knowledge to this day. Because somebody in the church figured out that the job is intervening on behalf of God's allies. If you're still struggling with whether or not you can tithe, serve, give, or reorient your schedule, you are at best Gideon. At best, truth is, you're probably an Amorite. Sucking resources off of the other people in your life so that you can feel happy and healthy about what you're doing. Repent and turn to the Holy God of the universe who gave us this model. When he said love one another, lay down your life for your friends. Let's pray together.